City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR, Community Radio, 8.55am, or um, on the internet on 3cr.org.au. Morning, Kevin. 
Oh, Almost called Corey. you heaven. <laughs> well, it's probably much more appropriate in many ways. Uh, and uh, Corey, Corey Green over there, of course, pressing buttons and realising just how important I am. I'm Kevin Healy. Yes, and um, it's hard this to is miss. this is City Limits. <laughs> it's pretty easy to miss, really. <laughs> but anyway, and we just heard um, Andy Payne with "With My Hammer" off of his new. EP, which you can probably get off of him. All right, so soon we'll be sitting here for a while. I'll pour the tea early in the day, uh, Corey, so here we go. And you'll be pleased to know today's tea is Japanese green with rice. With rice? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yes. So there we are now. Hang on, that's not near the... I've got to get that near the microphone. Oh, by the way, it's the um, fourth Wednesday of the month, so we're having... Um, we've got no specific subject, but we are going to go back to one we've done many, many times, Corey, which is the the toxic waste dump at Tullamarine, and, and, and waste dumps generally. We'll be talking to Helen Vandenberg, who's a regular on this program over many years, and I'll mention later about the fact that we have attempted to get comments from both the company involved and the EPA, the Environment Protection Authority, uh, about that, but I'll comment on that later. But we're going to have a long chat to, to Helen about those issues, because... Uh, it has been just dragging on and on and on, as regular listeners will know. And you, I know you've had researched and looked at the situation. And um, mm. yeah, so we'll um, we'll have a crack at that. These, we've got these strange head things today, by the way, which are going to make drinking tea difficult because there's a next. The wall has actually come down between us and the construction site next door, where they're putting up five stories of units, etc. And uh, so we're now we're not forced to. We are using different microphones, which eliminate the noise to a great degree when it comes because they have jackhammers and all sorts of things next to anything. Well, anything else you want to chat about before? We would you on? say that the wall coming down is of like the same sort of historical significance as the Berlin Wall coming down? Three CR representing communism, <sighs> major representing the worst excesses of capitalism. Yes, and perhaps Ronnie Reagan is the developer or something uh, out there speaking German or trying to speak Strine, I suppose, in this case, <laughs> and, and making a very bad job of it, as he did with his German. Incident, that reminds me, by the way, I've got a friend who speaks Mandarin who claims that Kevin Rudd's Mandarin is absolutely dreadful. <laughs> just, just was, you know, that, that, was just a, that was just a thought that came to my mind. Um, the, uh, apropos of last week's program, we talked to April Bragg from the Housing for the Aged Action Group about the problems of funding where... Homeless services and their service, and they're all desperately trying to get funding. Well, over the weekend, uh, Scott Morrison, the minister, um, the minister for compassion in this country, um, did announce a two-year extension of funding for homeless services. But at this stage, it's it's not it's totally unknown as to whether the housing for the age group has been funded in that as well. It probably hasn't because it's not. It comes under a different uh, scheme. But they And they've also been trying to see the new state minister. They thought the state minister would want to see them pretty quickly because the current the state minister is, in fact, a former housing worker on an estate. He makes a big point of that. Mm. Um, but um, he has so far not seen them, but they have now finally got an appointment. So at that point, they'll find out whether, in fact, they were also funded under this thing. So at this stage, the, the answer to, in case people were wondering, and probably not since last week's interview, um, we don't know the answer. That's, that's, that's what I'm saying. Um, what, an interesting aspect, um, Lee Kuan Yew died, as you know, this week. It's a sad loss to the world, a um, man who, um, who uh, managed to, anyone who wanted to oppose him in an election, ended up in jail, ended up being sued and had their property taken for defamation. And... Um, Anyway, a former Australian Prime Minister who's also big on suing people, Bob Hawke, uh, wrote a piece yesterday about eulogising what a great man he was. He brought Singapore into being as a sovereign independent state, etc. And moreover, he fought the commies, which Bob thought, you know, as a socialist was a pretty good thing to do. Um, and he says, those... he the. In the, in the article, he gets rid of the problem that maybe the bloke was a bit authoritarian with the line, those who criticise the paternalistic and at times authoritarian style of government he developed to deal with all this might cause to, pause to consider the scale of the challenges he faced, which included communism and all those terrible things. Mm. And he'd, he'd, he'd done wonderful things helping the United States in its role in Asia, which we all know, we all appreciate, of course. Um, and he concludes by saying, let it be remembered, Harry Lee was good company, company, formidably bright and sharp in argument, but kindly, gracious and charming too, just like Bob himself, I guess. <laughs> 
I doubt that I've ever enjoyed more intellectually stimulating conversations with a fellow leader and games of golf with him on his private course in Singapore were among the most enjoyable I have known. A great bloke and by any standards a great man. So there you are, Bob Hawke eulogizes you and that's it and I assume the private golf course is probably on some property he'd seized from some some opponent at some stage and taken off them um so there you are Corey I think you'd be pleased with that um another another nice line this week because um as we know um Benjamin Netanyahu who may have been re-elected because they've got, they've got to still forge together some sort of government over there in Israel but but um, he he has virtually made it clear he doesn't want to, he doesn't believe in a two state solution any more. He wants one state solution, as I keep saying on the week that was, you know, one state for us and no state for them. But um, he uh, the 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 US says, well, it's a bit worried about this because it believes in a two state solution still. So there's, they're claiming there's a bit of a rift now between the two. In case they were shaking in their boots in in Israel about this, um, you'll be pleased to know the United States United States spokesperson um, said that, um, and this is this is thank God for this. Um, he said U.S. security cooperation and military assistance wouldn't be affected. So, oh, good. Oh, sigh of relief there, don't you think? Yeah, no, that's <laughs> great. Um, I'm glad that political and ethical considerations don't come into. Uh, U.S. operations. Oh no, no, no! Well, Otherwise, that might really get in the way. Oh, <laughs> would they get in the way? <laughs> Come on, yes, they would. Um, now, I'm going to do a bit before we go to Helen because we only got one interview today. I, I want to do a little bit about industrial relations because um, there's been a number of events taking place, and uh, and these, are, of course, impact on cities because they're built by the workers. You'll be pleased to know that this this Productivity Commission rep- um, investigation into industrial relations has had a submission from the um, Business Council of Australia, and. It it says, part of the submission is, by 2020, the industrial relations system would not just be redesigned but transformed under the proposals. The award system would virtually disappear, many workers would receive less pay, and companies would have greater scope to impose change in the workplace without having to negotiate with employees, let alone unions. And it goes on in that... Um, that clause. It's under the Business Council model, the 122 awards now would be cut to one award for each industry, with each award limited to 10 clauses covering issues such as ordinary hours of work, wage classifications and accident pay. Over time, probably five years, just one universal award would apply across the workforce. And um, then they talk about, of course, penalty rates having to be changed, and we, we, we congratulate the Shop Assistance Union for its usual role in the last couple of days in, in playing along with that. Um, did you say roll or roll over? Uh, <laughs> that's it, roll. Sorry, I, I did I leave the over out? <laughs> well, thanks for correcting me there, Corey. Um, now, that's, that's a background because another thing that's happened in the last couple of days, now this, this is really interesting, I think. The, the Press Council has ruled... Um, that when I find it, here we are. Last August, I remember the headline quite distinctly because it was quite extraordinary. There was a headline in the Australian Cap in the Financial Review on August 7 last year $390,000 tugboat workers to strike for 40% rise. And the union, the Marine and Power Engineers Union at Port Hedland, and they, the article went on to say how they were going to hold our wonderful resource industry to ransom and the usual crap, you know. They work for a mob called tugboat operator called TK Shipping. Now they they the union complained about this to the press council, and the press council concluded that the the headline was inaccurate, misleading, and unfair, because one they weren't earning that, and two they were actually claiming a fourteen percent wage rise over four years, uh, which is a bit different to the headline. Although I think you know to be fair, the headline got the fact right. They were actually tugboat workers. The, Yes, the rest of it was a bit wrong. Yeah, they're um, not hot on their mathematics. No, that's right, and you make make the odd error, can't you? Well, <laughs> this led, despite the fact that those two minor facts, the amount they earned and the forty percent, wasn't quite correct. Mm. The Fin Review has attacked the Press Council for its finding in an editorial the same day. I think they would have been smarter to just shut up, <laughs> you know, have it on page two, buried away, and leave it at that. But they say. Um, it reveals a basic flaw in the process used in what the Financial Review agrees is an important regulatory function. Um, 
and then this is the bit I love, they're, they're attacking it. They say, but the Financial Review also is the messenger reporting on the dispute between the union and tugboat mechanics employer TK Shipping. Any proper judgment on this reporting requires the views of both sides of the dispute to be considered. Okay. So yes. and the t- amount of money, the figure is actually a, an opinion of you, not... Well, presumably. Not a fact. Well, no, no, it was given to them by the company. And TK has not complained about the headline nor the story from August. Well, the company, the employer didn't complain about it. What, how could it possibly go just on the basis of the union complaining, for God's sake? Mm. In fact, the headline, this is the bit I love, the headline was based on TK-supplied information that the press council dismisses <laughs> as inaccurate. So they only went to one side of it themselves, got the information, put it in the headline, then they get accused of being wrong, and then they attack the... Uh, they they claim that they're the messenger. I think it's the messenger they're attacking. And they have lines like, the press council fails a basic test of journalism to check with both sides of a dispute. Well, hang on. As a result, it gets mixed up over accuracy and fairness. Well, I think we all can see the accuracy wasn't too good, but the mm. fairness, well, the fairness, it was fair because it attacked the union, for God's sake. Mm. Um, so what are they complaining about? But anyway, that's that one. And in a similar vein... On this, because you know what we're building up is the usual attacks on unions that just go on and on these days. Um, a rally in Perth, in which this goes back a couple of years, but seventy-six workers um, took action, and it was um, it was over. Uh, what did they complain about? They complained about. Uh, they were building the new children's hospital and they were concerned with attracting more local jobs, apprenticeships and content such as manufactured materials on major oil and gas projects etc. But the, the, anyway, the, the construction union called a rally. Now Nigel Hedgekiss, that bloke who you know, is in charge of the fair work building and construction but they haven't quite got what they want yet. They've got a, a, a diluted version of it. Mm. But he... Um, he said the the workers would be sued, and so now these workers are being sued and facing ten thousand dollar fines each. The seventy six workers who took protest action, um, and uh, Hedgekiss has actually said, um, and then and the site just to just to add to that, the it's attracted protest and litigation because it's been constructed by John Hollands, which employs non union enterprise agreements in Western Australia. Hedgekiss has previously said workers must get permission from their employer before leaving work to attend rallies. Isn't that wonderful? And of course, you well, get employers odds on to give you a, give you permission. Yeah, employers love having people protest. Oh, them. do they? What? And Hedgekiss also said that workers who are, uh, took took a legal action through quote leaving work, not coming to work, or refusing to do work. You see, their role in life is to attend our employer's place every day, and if we don't. We are illegal. That's illegal. Yeah, it's not illegal to lock you out, but it's illegal not to turn up if, mm. if they want you there. Okay, mm. so that's that one. This is building up, isn't it? Um, and so, uh, are you getting a, a feeling here that the papers don't like the unions? Oh, I'm not saying that. Oh, okay, they're just reporting the facts as we got in the original story. You know, the fact, okay, the facts were a touch wrong, but they reported mm. what the company told them. And that's reasonable, isn't it? Well, if the company says it's true, then well, it it's must, true. It must be true. And the other one, um, I'll get onto this year. We've got a couple of minutes. And he we'll who go to controls heaven. the past controls the future, and he who controls the Murdoch Papers controls the past. And you're assuming these are, are the present. You're assuming these are all males, of course, and they usually are in these situations, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, another one, um, uh, the there's a thing called the bulk ore transport system, bots, which. Isn't a bad name for it, I suppose. Hmm. There's a mob called Mineral Resources. They're a resource services company. They want to build this BOTS thing, which happens to be a driverless, a driverless train. It 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 um it reduce it will reduce the cost of drastically reduce the cost of hauling bulk commodities to port. Hmm. Um and um. Bots it describes as being somewhere between a train, a monorail and a conveyor and help it create more longevity in the business as the crashing price for, for the resource drops. And um, the first boss is possible will be built in the next 12 months or so at a saving of $20 a tonne they expect out of it. Um, what we really think we can do is help Australian mining get down to the lower quartile, what it needs to be in Australia competing. So it's a driverless shot um, and they're driven, they they... they they're above the ground, so it's interesting. They um, uh, 
The supporting post, it's cheaper because the supporting posts are pole driven. The track does not require expensive earthworks or, or ballast and will stand as high as 10 metres, allowing it to pass over waterways or existing infrastructure. Each bot's train is expected to be two kilometres long, travel at about 80k an hour, and have the capacity to haul 4,600 tonnes. And currently, a train carries about 25,000 tonnes, so you assume there'd be a lot more of these bots things to. to meets that. So did they say uh, it would save $20 a tonne? They would save $20 a tonne by and having this... And how much this. is a tonne of coal? Well, now this, actually it's iron ore in this case. It's dropped to below 50 at the moment and because it's dropping they're trying to find ways of saving so one way is to get rid of workers actually working on it. But I mean, um, you know, $20 of the $50 can't be the price of hauling it on the train, surely? Well... Considering all the other parts in the supply chain, well, you know, the digging so. it well, up, suppose, the well, putting tw- it on a boat. The $20 would include the wages for the people who actually work now to take it there, I guess, which you now get rid of. Yeah, the train drivers. Yeah. But, I mean, the train drivers can't be worth costing them $20 a tonne. Well, you wouldn't think so. And they, anyway, a lot, of the, a lot of them are now, even the trains are driverless now. Yeah. Um, now, they're building one in China. Yeah, totally they're off. well. It's <laughs> they're going to save like you know more like one dollar a ton. These are the people fifty who did cents the, a ton. These or... are the people who did the first headline. Don't forget, so let's not get too excited about the mass. Right. Um, and they're building a test one in in China at the moment. And the first will be developed pending approvals from um, um, later this year. You know, will start start construction. They said the third three thirty one kilometer line expected to cost fifteen billion to develop from womb to tomb. You see, women do come into it, including. The the track supporting facilities, rolling stock, and a proposed trans shipping facility at the port. Now, all that, but what worries me is if it's going to be, what did I say, 300 and something long, 331 kilometres long, and it's 10 metres above the earth, then then how, do, how does the community get across it? Hmm. Um, they don't say that. There must be a way, but if, if people want to cross, or even animals, for instance, uh, might live out there and want to cross how do they you don't cross? think it would be arches like one of those old style aqueducts um maybe i mean i'm i'm looking for solutions you, you've obviously got them here we go <laughs> well i'm just still wondering if they're going to be spending you know all this money on this new train track it's not even just retrofitting trains to make them driverless where where are the savings uh, 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 take that on notice. <laughs> I've been on a driverless train actually um, in London and they just actually put it on the regular train track. They didn't need to build a new train track. Mm. Yeah. Oh, but this one's they've got to build this because it's a bob. It's a different type of thing, you see. It's not a normal, it's a bots. It's a bots. Yeah, it's a yeah. bots. And, you know, to be honest, at first I was a little bit scared about the driverless train, but then I thought it's, you know, slightly better than looking in and seeing the train driver colouring in. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. That's it. So... Which is a a, a real experience I've had. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's not so good. Where did, where did that happen? Queensland. Oh, did it? <laughs> yeah, on the, on the Metropolitan Railways. Uh, so I thought, it, yeah, you ended, know what? It ended up okay, though, obviously. Yeah, you know well, what? This is a little anyway. bit better than that time. Yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, and you'll be pleased to know that, because we did talk with the other week when we were talking to John um, Passant about the tax department, the number of workers being sacked, and they've now, they've, they've sacked, sorry, they've slashed public service jobs by 11,000, not sacked people, that sadly had to let go. 11, I thought that the caring ruling class wanted to create jobs, why do they keep slashing them? I don't know, you know 11,000 have gone. And there's another story that there's going to be a, a strike, in fact, um, in the next week or so. Uh, and the the departments involved um, include taxation, human services, defence, veterans affairs, environment, employment, geoscience, Australia, CSIRO and Australian Institute of Criminology. Um, all planning industrial action because of the you know, the offers we talked about, 0.5% pay rise, cuts to conditions and allowances, removal of superannuation protection and loss of jobs, or, you know, more, more jobs anyway. It's grim um, when they're making cuts to defence. They never do that. Yeah, that's right. That's terrible. I think it's... The, but it's not... It's only, I think, to the... Um, the the um, service people, no, not not when I say service to the people who um, administer. It's not the actual people who kill people. They don't cut them. No, no. Yeah, or I wouldn't th- want to piss them off. Or what you use to kill them with. 
<laughs> no, you've got to have plenty of that. Yeah. Um, but the, the interesting, again, this, this was a story in the Fitton Review yesterday, and it, it went on for several paragraphs about the disruption it would cause to, um, to, to people, uh, to passengers, to mail, to cargo, etc., uh, before it actually got down to the fact that what they're striking about are these massive attacks on their wages and conditions. But somewhere at the bottom, it did get around to mentioning that eventually, uh, which I thought was interesting. And that's, I think that's about enough to go on today. We'll move right. on to um, Helen Vandenberg and talk about, well, what we've been talking about in some ways, toxic waste. <laughs> You're right listening now. to City Limits on 3CR, and that was the Warp Zone with the Captain Planet theme song. I thought that was Helen Vandenberg singing at the end there. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually, um, yes. Yeah, so I mean, I'm sure it probably is the the um, Trans Pacific Clean Away theme song. In fact, um, <laughs> Helen Vandenberg's on the line. We've talked to her many, many times about numerous issues, but in the recent years, particularly the Tullamarine toxic waste up and the fact that it stays toxic and stays waste and nothing seems to be happening. Helen, just to background this uh, for this week, I contacted the company on Monday. And spent a long time um, waiting on the line. In fact, the first time I asked to tell, I gave them my questions, I got cut off. The second time, they spent a long time with me on hold and then came back and said they couldn't comment, but I could ring the, the Brisbane head office, which I did. And I put some questions like, why is it taking so long? Why is, in fact, the company's uh, financial situation to do with the fact that you're trying to pass on the cost to the community rather than doing what you should really do, uh, etc.? And they promised to email us yesterday. They had uh, Corey's email address, and to date, as far as we can make out, nothing's arrived. He promised it would come late afternoon. Yeah, nothing's happened yet. Nothing's happened yet. And I also rang the EPA on Monday to ask similar questions, but in their case, ask why they haven't been much more stringent in enforcing the law and forcing the company to do something about it. Um, and um, they, in fact, said they'd get their PR person to ring me back, their spin doctor, because you always talk to the spin doctors. Mm-hmm. And um, they, in fact, haven't got back to me at all since then, so that's that. Um, so we'll see how we go, Helen. But just perhaps just because I'm, I'm talking in fairly general terms, if you could just for listeners who might have been on the moon the last couple of years and have missed you, uh, just background the situation a little for us. Well, thanks, Kevin, and good morning, Corey. Good morning. Um, 1971, the Metropolitan Board of Works gave Clean Away a planning permit saying that they could use an old quarry site, which, of course, would have been a deep hole in the ground where basalt's been extracted, leaving the surrounding basalt fractured from the blasting. That's important to remember. And the EPA gave a licence to um, a private company then called Clean Away, which was later, 17 years later, bought by Brambles, which in 2007 was bought by Trans Pacific Clean Away. And the licence gave permission for industrial waste and inert solid waste to be dumped in that hole. Now, the consequence today is uh, that at one time part of that cell was filled and capped, but the stench and the odour and the fact that leachate was brought up and left in liquid pools at the top, which, you know, evaporation and airborne chemicals got blown towards the residents. Um, there were numerous fires at the site um, and the internal uh, underground temperature sections of the dump is still at 42 degrees and they told us at the last meeting it had been up higher, as, as high as 50 um, you have massive chemical reactions going on there, but it's the liquid waste at the bottom that is um, has caused most of the problems, and um, some of it was extremely highly toxic. Now, um, there was a plan in 2006 which caused the Terminate Tunnel Toxic Dump Group to action group to form. Um, a previous community group had got the liquid waste banned, and um, particularly in the light of what had happened overseas where a community had been built on top of a liquid waste dump and there were numerous children's deaths due to leukaemia and um, the gases were going up through the soil and getting into, because this was in America and they had air conditioning throughout the year, um, people were dying from cancer, getting brain tumours and children were dying and those 400 families were eventually moved off the top of that particular dump. Now we don't have anyone living on top of the dump we have a dump, then there's 500 metres, a 29-hectare site, and then there's houses. Now, there have been concerns about community health 
ongoing for the life of that dump and they're still there. When we first went to the media in 1971 over um, our community um, survey, we had 71 recorded cancers. We now have 200. Um, anyhow, the current situation is that the landfill is capped and that the plan that was there, because they said they could get 0 0.231 litres per second of oil um, into the wells. Now, there are monitoring wells throughout, staggered throughout the dump. Uh, initially, there were 48. That was a, Anthony Lane, in his audit report, said there wasn't sufficient evidence to justify the conclusions. And he ordered a doubling of the... Um, he recommended a doubling uh, And who, of, who commissioned him to do that report? Uh, the EPA insists on audits to be done at different times. But the trouble the EPA has had, going back to your earlier point about stringency... The EPA, from our point of view, over many years has seen seemed lacking in expertise and lacking in rigour in enforcing audits and lost track of what was demanded. When you were mentioning the the cancer, um, there were cancer trials performed by the Cancer Epidemiology Centre from Cancer Council Victoria that said there wasn't an excess of cancer incidents. That's true, they did, but the difference in the two reports is we actually asked for an investigation of the people exposed to chemicals, mm. not the general population that wasn't exposed because we claimed the, clo the exposure population was within two and a half kilometres and those who had worked in that time. Because of the 20 to 30 year delay in getting exposure to those chemicals and the onset of cancer, we didn't think it was fair to take the general populace. The Cancer Council had no option but to do their survey the way they did it because when a person's diagnosed with cancer, um, their address is recorded at the place they're residing at that time. Mm -hmm. Now, our point is that some of the people who reported on ours were people who had lived in the area for 20, 25 years and then moved out and then been diagnosed with cancer. They're included in our survey because ours is a survey of people exposed. Not, and the Cancer Council re registration is anybody in the city of Hume in that particular area who got cancer, but their area was bigger than our two and a half case. We're saying we've got within the fallout zone for a toxic dump, which we kind of agreed is two and a half k's, that's where we've got those cancers from the people who resided there for 20 plus years. So there's a different, different methodology required if you're looking. When the um, Friscal fires are investigated, they didn't investigate the general population. They investigated the fireys who had trained there because they were the people exposed. That's what we want done here. Mm. Fair enough. But the Cancer Council is not in a position to do that. So we respected their work, we appreciated them, we particularly appreciated Professor Giles, Giles coming out and saying, yes, with exposure to chemicals like that, you have every reason to be deeply concerned. Mm. Mm. Yep, fair enough. Yeah, That's but, okay. uh, there was one of the questions, in fact, I asked the company, but it, the, as in the email we haven't got, the reply was going to be, but anyway, we haven't got it. Oh, well, that's what the reply will be, that the Cancer Council said that and there's no risk. We still disagree with that conclusion. Anyhow, back to the main game. <laughs> if health isn't the main game, I don't know what is. Um, anyhow, back to the current situation. We now have a closed dump, which in 2006 there was... It was at, they were the, the wells that are down there to monitor um, leachate and to gather, pump the leachate up and they used to put it into pools and let it evaporate and then sometimes they pumped it back in. Um, because of the oil in it. Anyhow, we have a very dangerous mix in the groundwater. Now, the problem is that even though we've got the, the dump now capped, rain can't come in from the top, but because only part of the sides were lined with clay, which in itself will crack and allow things to seep through it. Groundwater goes through the dump and out the dump and takes transports the chemicals off site. We now know that the contamination... Now, the EPA says, you know, we review the, how far the contamination plume has been spread every three years. We think it should be done every year because when they looked at it in 2012, um, the last time they looked at it, they had found... It was found that the contamination plume had spread further than expected and the concentrations were higher. Now, the thing that we're particularly concerned about is vinyl chloride gas because the gas come, can come up through the soil and into homes. Now, the contamination plume is at the very edge of 
the residential area and possibly going under there already because we don't know for sure because no one's testing and boring in anybody's backyard. So this is a highly contaminated plume. It is so badly contaminated that you cannot use groundwater in the area for five kilometres of the dump because of the high risk of um, exposure to dangerous chemicals. Now, uh, and just to cut but in here, that it's all, yeah. is that that's based on the precautionary principle because they're saying if the groundwater was used for refilling a swimming pool and people were active in it, you would you could and there was vinyl chloride gas in it, then that would get more stirred up and you'd be more inclined to breathe it in. So though there's a low probability, under the precautionary principle, you wouldn't expose children or anyone to that risk. So therefore, they banned it. Now, we thought that was strong regulation, right? And that's what we want maintained. And we do see some improvements in the EPA and we wish them very well in becoming uh, much more... um, to an improvement in their expertise and an improvement in their regulation. They've still got a long way to go, but you can say they are trying, right? So that's better than them just being inert and indifferent. And And I was going to say, in the early days, this wasn't sealed, so a lot of this is already getting into the the groundwater and moving into the local creeks, probably the Maribyrnong River and ultimately the the, bay, I assume. Well, in 2007, a very extensive secondary risk assessment was done and... um, there were heavy metal salts in the soil of the banks of the Mooney Ponds Creek. Now, the residents had complained and had reported that the dump was seeping into the Mooney Ponds Creek and no action was taken by EPA or Clean Away, which was owned by Bramble then, about that. So, uh, but now you have the 2007 report showing the photos and showing these are the salt creek, these are the salt crystals, therefore the dump was seeping into the creek, which was an absolute breach of the licence, which should have been reason for the EPA to halt works at the dump till that was rectified or shut it down at the time, and that didn't happen, and that's where the EPA is in serious error mm. because that was on the, both the planning permit and on the licence that no, there should be no odours offensive to humans. Well, then they could have shut it down on both on that and it wasn't to impact on the waterway. Our concern today remains that the toxic oils in the bottom of the creek that are floating on water at the moment do consistently and persistently, just to be emphatic, dissolve into that water, and as the groundwater is leaking out of the dump, it will continue to do that. The company's current position is, based on a very short trial, that... Um, they can't. They took out the oil that was in the bottom of these bores. You've got to imagine, sort of, you know, when you drill a hole into a piece of wood and you get right through to the other side. These these um, bores go right down 40 metres and 25 metres, and they um, watch to see what the groundwater flow is. And others collect the leachate and they bring it up. Now, in that leachate, we've got these 220 chemicals, 40 of which are chemicals of concern. Now, they will continue, because they will continue to dissolve in the water, they will eventually get into that contamination plume and that plume cannot be stopped. It is heading towards um, the bay, the Maribyrnong River. Because we are Let's, part of all... Let's, the, um, so, can we talk about the um, trials that were done in September 2014 that said that actually um, the stuff in the bottom of those bores was was sort of gunky and didn't flow very fast. Can yeah, that, you? That's the justification that they use. The point is they say they refill slowly. Mm. Well, there's a couple of things that you should do. If you've got a well open that you want to collect oil out of it, you don't seal it off. You keep it flowing. Now, um, the trial showed that they took, they pumped out... Um, the liquid and they sent it off and it was destroyed effectively. Mm. However, it didn't refill quickly enough um, and they're saying that because of the slow refill of the bores, it's not worth doing it. Yeah, because it's it's not very freely moving liquid. That's right. So, but we're saying we don't care how slowly it refills, 
when it refills, it should be brought up and destroyed because you do not, this should not be in anyone's groundwater. It should not be heading towards the Maribyrnong River and the Bay. And the one thing everybody is totally overlooking is the fact that the deep aquifer is 40 metres down. Well, I'm sorry, but the deep aquifer is breached at Nidri Quarry where there's a place at Valley Lakes. Valley Lake um, Housing Estate is there um, and that's just 50 metres from my home. So we're saying that there... And because you can go down to the quarry now and see the water coming through the, the rock deep down, dropping into a trench and it's all very green around that trench and then it's put into this lake in the middle of a housing estate. Mm. So the deep aquifer is breached and it is an issue, right? But mm. the point is... Nobody wants dioxins, furans, heavy metals and all the other chemicals that are in that groundwater getting into the bay. Mm. So we're saying not only for community health but for environmental health, on the precautionary principle alone, whereas in the absence of data to prove that it is absolutely safe, then you should not, then you should act to prevent that, right? So we're saying this would be extremely bad for the bay and the rivers and the waterways. The actual stigma, so therefore it should be removed. The community are uneasy about the fact that they've got a groundwater, contaminated groundwater plume. They've got the privilege of being the only community in Melbourne with this, mm. going under their homes and they might be living with odourless carcinogenic vinyl chloride gas coming up in their homes and they wouldn't know. What sort of a um, standard does your organisation want to see um, to make the tip safe? We want the extraction of the maximum, to the maximum extent achievable, not what is practical, but what is achievable. We want that Elnapple removed from the dump. We cannot get it all out because some of it's been absorbed into the waste that was used to fill in the liquid pool. We know that we won't get it all out. What we are really disenchanted with is the fact that we were told there was so much oil in the bottom of that dump that they could bring it up and have a tank farm there and they would be selling off that oil and shandying it and then selling it off as oil for industrial furnaces, which we pointed out. You can't do that when it's got PCB contamination of greater than 50 parts per million and some of it's much higher than that. You mm. can't do that. And mm. then they said, oh, well, and so that whole project got done. Mm. We find it hard to accept that in... The intervening not eight years, between 2006 and 2008, a highly commercial proposition where they could get out 200,000 litres of oil a year is now, oh, we can't get anything out very quickly, so let's leave it and the bugs will eat it up. And we're saying, hold on, the bugs eat up fresh oil. Yeah, that's true. This is stale oil and they don't eat it up. And this is highly contaminated oil and they won't eat it up. So that is not believable that the bugs will, over centuries, eat it up because it's not the right kind of mix for them. Could the cynical suggest, Helen, that uh, they imagine that the total clean-up would be quite costly but that that's the problem, that the company is not prepared to spend that so it's really prepared to say the community must bear the cost rather than the company? Well, I'm not going to make a comment on them because that's all hypothetical, but I understand oh, but why cynical. people... Would, the cynical people <laughs> would say that, right? And you'd say they had some reason for being cynical. In the meantime, the point is there's an EPA and the EPA has given them an order that says they have to clean it up. So tonight's meeting is critical because at tonight's meeting we will be getting... Um, we were told we would get... Sorry, I was meeting. going to come to that, but just tell us what tonight's meeting is. Well, it's a special extra meeting that was to happen in February um, and got postponed by another five weeks in which we were going to get a better understanding of the technical report because when we got the first report in September that Corey referred to, mm. we asked questions and they said, look, that will all be explained in the report. Well, we've been reading the report and we... At this moment, we can't see how, how some of our, that our questions have been fully answered. So tonight, the panel who um, had oversight of this, plus the guy who's written the report, will be there, and the EPA usually has an officer there, 
one or two offices there, and we go. So we, we've got a lot of outstanding questions that we want answered. We've been given some answers. Now, the one thing the company has changed in is that we said we wanted data before the meeting so we had time to read it. Well, this time we got it two weeks ahead, but there's so much data. Uh, I've gone through two and a half um, toners printing it all. So there's a lot to hmm. digest. Wow. Maybe um, maybe better for, from from Corey's point of view, she didn't get the email then. <laughs> well, the point is unless we... Because we said, look, if you've got evidence to say that that's now a reality, which in 2006 when we said, well, why can't it be bioremediated? And that we were told it wasn't possible for this site because there were too many chemicals, too much concentration, it wouldn't work on that oil. Mm. Um, and now they're saying it does. I said, well, can we have the academic papers that certify, that, that cite that... And when we've been looking through those academic papers, we're still back in the same position that they're talking about fresh oil and we've got stale contaminated oil. So we, we, we don't feel that we've been given the academic justification. Mm. And it's very, and as Mr Lane, the auditor, has said, well, it's very hard to find an example of a toxic dump that's been clean, that the oil's been cleaned out of. So if they were to turn around and say, well, we're, we're using what comes out of oil fields and small spill cleanups, because El Napa is often treated, well, yeah, but that's not in the situation we're in. We seem to be in a unique situation. And the point is, there's about 8,000 people living around the dump within two and a half k's of it. Mm. Mm. Now, if you were going to cite a landfill like that today, you wouldn't have anybody within two and a half k's. No government's going to turn around and say, we'll move everybody out. Um, so... Um, the, the thing is, we have to make it as safe as we possibly can, not only for the people now, but, I mean, considering the suffering the community's had over the past 37 years, the fact that they're still there saying, listen, we don't want anybody to suffer what we've suffered. We want to make sure that the families that will be living here in the future have got a clean, safe environment. Mm. Now, what other community in Melbourne is standing their ground and saying... Please try to make our environment safe for the future. Nobody else that I know of is in that same position. And on that theme, you've got you've got an event coming up in May, haven't you? About about waste generally, waste dumps generally. Well, yeah, that's because there's now a coalition of Victorians for smarter waste management. Because you've got the people at Lindhurst, the people at Buller, the people at Ravenhall, which was owned by Borrell and is now owned by Trans Pacific, and the people at Tullamarine. And Hanson has got this huge facility out at Willert, which is within smelling distance of Craigieburn. These are going to be... You've, you've, we've got all of these people who are upset and dissatisfied with the lack of rigour in how landfills are managed. You've got the Auditor-General's report that said um, Victorians can have no confidence in the way waste hazardous waste management is conducted in Victoria or stored or transported. That's in 2010. Since then, there's been... Um, landfill management and in that report the Auditor General is saying is that local councils who run landfills and this would include the City of Hume um, do not and the City of Wyndham they don't fully understand the environmental um, implications of what they're doing nor do they have the expertise and nor do they fully understand the huge financial burden that comes at the end of a landfill site where you have to manage it in perpetuity to, to keep the risk under control so People are just fed up with the whole landfill industry. On top of that, in 2001, the Brax government brought out a fabulous policy, which isn't very much altered in this last version we've got of it about valuing waste, but they never implemented it, hmm. right? Now, the point is, putting stuff in the ground can be guaranteed to compromise your groundwater. In 1988, in America... The US EPA went out and they wanted to find out if landfills leaked. They picked a few that they thought would be and some that they thought wouldn't be. And guess what? They found that every one of them leaked. So at this Senate committee, the, the guy from the EPA got up and said, we have concluded that landfills always leak. Hmm. Now, why put your waste in the ground to contaminate your groundwater? Your ground Water is such a precious gift on this planet. No other planet we know of has it. We All life depends on it. Why would you let it be polluted for heaven's sake? It just goes round and round and round and round. We're drinking what the dinosaurs bathed in. 
We're taking that as rhetorical, of course. Oh, uh, well, yeah. it's, just, it's mind-boggling that you would compromise something so critical. To so, you've got, so to get back, you've got an event in May then about this. Yes, we haven't set the date yet, um, but we are going to hold right. a symposium right. because we, we want to talk with the people in the industry and saying, look, guys, landfilling is just dumb, right? We need to do something better than this. And there's not enough recycling. There's not enough recuperating, you know, getting waste. If we need to have massive composting, well, yeah, we might need to do that. But so far, the communities near composting facilities are saying they stink. So there's got to be an improvement in that. But we have got to reduce landfilling. Mm -hmm. And what we have said all along is that toxic waste, we said this when we were fighting the Nidri and Werribee fights in 1996, toxic waste must be stored above ground and keep your chemicals separate so that you can mine it in the future to recover them when those chemicals are going to be needed. And, of course, the, you know, there's also the argument that you should produce so much less of it anyway. I mean, just well, stop yeah, producing so much. Cleaner, yes, but because of WorkSafe and liability issues increasing in some in a few countries where workers have got some rights, that's not on the global scale... Um, You've got them, there's a change in practice because it's um, exposing workers and they don't need to be exposed to toxic chemicals. So you've got a change in practice, mm. right? So we, yeah, and that was part of our claim back in 1996 clean production and what can't be avoided, store above ground where you can monitor it. So if, if you've got steel tanks there or steel drums and you can see if it starts to crack or leak, you can deal with that, right? You can re bin it. Here, when it's in the ground, it's an invisible leak that's been going on for 37 years, basically, because, or nearly that long, um, and and now we've got a terrible possible consequence. I mean, we've had terrible health consequences to the community that was exposed. So, and see, what's interesting to us is the fiscal fires are now, they were known to be toxic, and now those exposed to them are, are allowed to claim their cancer expenses and things. Hmm. The people in Tullamarine were also exposed to fires like that of the same kind of chemicals, in fact worse. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up. Yeah, I just want to leave before we go, I'll leave you with a quote, Helen, because while I was hanging on to the line at the Melbourne office here on Monday... Um, I was getting all these wonderful ads for their own company from Trans-Pacific Cleanaway uh, on the phone while behind the phone somewhere they were working out the solution to what I'd, what I'd asked. Uh, and one of them was, you'll love this one, all waste is a resource that can have tangible economic, environmental and community benefits, Helen. So hmm. there you are. As long as it's not toxic, it's probably a plausible <laughs> statement. There you are. I knew you'd be pleased with the community benefits. Mm. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Kevin. Okay. Thanks, Helen. Bye. Okay. Helen Vandenberg there, who's a uh, such a long-term activist, and she had one of the few success stories of this program because um, they also were involved in trying to save Steel Creek some years ago from a dump, and they actually won that battle. But it's one of the areas now where this water's leaching into, of course, <laughs> um, which is a bit of a problem. Um, but... Um, yeah, it's a it's an ongoing problem, and it's I think it comes down to the fact that the EPA and the companies just aren't enforcing it hard enough, or company doesn't want to spend the money. I guess that's my that's my opinion. Corey. Corey. Um. Yes, capitalism. Oh yeah, that's it. <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> hey, it's fifty nine. We've got to go. All um, right. Fifty eight on the other clock. Anyway, whichever it doesn't matter. What's one of the two? And um, next week's transport. Corey? Yes, yes it is. Transport, among other things. I don't know what else we'll have. Transport. And um, thank yourself and say goodbye. Goodbye to everyone. Uh, Thanks, Kevin.